0: Father, all through the scriptures, you've told us of glory and blessing that is, and glory and blessing that is to come. Our hearts are fixed on you, waiting for you to fulfill all of your promises. Thank you for the hundreds and hundreds of promises that came true at your first coming. Thank you that you entered the world, God becoming man in order that sinful human beings like us might be rescued and delivered. Thank you that everything the prophets said would be true of you at your first arrival were, in fact, fulfilled. Not one of them was left unfulfilled or undone. But there are hundreds more that have yet to be fulfilled. And even the spring rains and the late snowfall that we've enjoyed this year remind us of your promises that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a beautiful flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. You have promised through the, the prophet Isaiah that not only would we see an environmental transformation, but that there will be a spiritual transformation of the nations as the peoples of the earth see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. And Because of this promise and many more, you have also said to us, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. It is your promise that the eyes of the blind would be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, that the lame would leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute would sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And though we know that will be fulfilled perfectly and completely one day, oh God, we are asking for streams of living water to flow through the desert land of our hearts and our souls both in this assembly across this valley across the world great god would you come today and open our eyes where they are blind that we may see you as you are would you unstop the ears of our souls that we may hear this life-giving word and be transformed by it would you put your saving strength into our souls and Loose our tongues that we may sing for joy. Please, pour out the living water of your Holy Spirit that we may be rescued entirely, saved from our sins, delivered from our fears, rescued from our sorrows. Oh God, would you come and bless us with your power, with your glory, and with your love. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced a genuine hearing loss, but that is a profound and difficult loss. Hearing loss is as unique, I discovered in an article this week. I'm one of the medical, many medical websites that are out there to describe conditions like this, but listen to these words. Hearing loss is as unique to each person as a fingerprint. No one person has the same type of loss in each ear, nor do people experience hearing loss the same way. And when hearing loss is left untreated, there are direct and indirect consequences. This article goes on to list a few of those, and so keep listening with me. With untreated hearing loss, various sounds and letters become more difficult to hear and understand as frequencies are lost. Each letter and verbal sound corresponds to a unique frequency range, and when one loses the ability to hear that range, two things happen. First, all the sounds, letters, and words that involve those frequencies are more difficult to hear and exceptionally harder to understand. Secondly, When hearing loss is left untreated as time goes on, the brain adjusts to not hearing the sounds associated with those frequencies, and words involving those sounds begin to lose their crispness and can even impact the way speech is interpreted and used. The ears and brain communicate together to help process sounds clearly and replicate them for speech. And when you lose certain frequencies, that communicative pathway is interruptive, interrupted and impaired. The article goes on to note the impact on relationships. Some of you have experienced this. Now, I remember when I was much younger, my teenage years, I was involved in scouts, and one of the members of our troop uh, was deaf, and we loved him. His name was Rusty, and he always made life interesting, and he was so enthusiastic about life, but there were moments where you just could not understand what he was trying to tell you. He had brothers who were also in Scouts, and so we were thankful for them because they they could sign to one another and, and interpret for Rusty. But if Rusty were ever alone with some of us who didn't know sign language, we, we felt severely limited in our capacity to communicate with him. And it impacted our relationship. And this article goes on to say that relationships with untreated hearing loss can be challenging as conversations and social outings are not conducive to understanding speech. Sometimes loud group environments make it difficult not only to hear, but also to understand what is being said and who is speaking. Untreated hearing loss can thus become a stressful issue for not only the one with untreated hearing loss, but for that person's friends and loved ones. Over time, this may even lead to the person with untreated hearing loss to become isolated and avoid social events. Now, if you've experienced this personally or you've lived with someone who has a condition like this, then you would understand that deeply, personally. It may even be hard to hear just a brief summary of that because it takes you back to some of those very difficult relational challenges that you've known or experienced. And and I, I set this up by way of introduction. So again, as we come to the Word of God, we would feel some of the depth of the personal need that's being represented in God's Word And so I invite you again to turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're coming to the end of chapter 7 today, verses 31 through 37, and the little heading that the, the editors of this particular, of my Bible, have inserted, which may be exactly what yours says if you're reading the English Standard Version. It's not the inspired text, but a little heading says, Jesus heals a deaf man. But there's so much more to this story than just the fact that the all-powerful God is going to work and speak in a particular way, where a man who has a physical impairment uh, goes away healthy and whole. There's all kinds of, of personal tension and difficulty and challenge that is loaded into a story like this. And again, as we come to the Word of God, you must come asking at least two questions. The first is this, who is this Jesus? Who is He really? Not what have I imagined him to be or what have have I maybe uh, been taught that he is, but what does the word of God reveal him to be? And then the second question needs to be phrased something like this. What is he actually trying to reveal about me? Because when God gives us his word, he's always trying to lead us to that place, not only where we discover and realize truth about him, but where we actually see ourselves as we are. Now, remember, in its context, Jesus has been giving parables and teaching, and one of the questions that he asked his own disciples is this, are you also without understanding? That is, are you listening to my lessons and hearing these parables, and yet you're not getting it? You see, there's a kind of spiritual deafness that they are living with, and you know, so are we. Apart from God's powerful, divine intervention, we would just live our lives deaf to all of his truth, deaf to his work in in the world, deaf, and consequently, because we're deaf, unable to speak as we ought. So carry that little bit of introductory context into these seven verses and follow along as I read Mark 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, again, it's an amazing story. So here is a man who is severely limited by this physical handicap. There's some, uh, some commentators and scholars who think that perhaps he had lost his hearing over a period of time. The text doesn't indicate it, but there are some things here in describing his particular condition that may point that particular direction. Um, it's clear that his inability to hear uh, actually limits his ability to understand, but there's certainly more. And Mark makes a point of saying there is a speech impediment and he uses a word, and I'm going to just throw something out here that you need to hang on to, and I'll come back to it later, but there's, a, there's an unusual word that Mark uses. It's a very rare Greek term, and I often I don't like to get bogged down often in, the, in some of those nuances of the Greek in the New Testament or the Hebrew in the Old Testament, but I do think it is worth noting that Mark has apparently used a very rare term to describe the speech defect of this man, and we need to ask why. It's not evident to us as English readers and English speakers, but it's there in the text. And and so we're going to answer that later. You just file that little one away that, okay, Mark used an unusual term. Why would he use an unusual term to refer to this man's speech impediment? What is apparent is he has difficulty speaking. So it's a man who is in need of of Christ's healing. He's also a man who's in need of Christ's blessing. And, and we see some of that indicated there by the friends bringing him and asking Jesus very simply, lay your hands on him. Now remember, again, Jesus is ministering in predominantly Greek-controlled areas at this point. He's not in the heart of, of Jewish Israel at this point. He's left Tyre and Sidon, two towns that were Greek, Hellenistic uh, regions. Uh, He just performed a powerful miracle with the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Well, he's gone to the Decapolis. This is also a predominantly Greek area. And so these friends of this man come to Jesus and say, they're begging him, please lay your hands on him. And Jesus is known as a powerful healer, isn't he? All through the Gospel of Mark, he's been healing people of all kinds of diseases and infirmities and ailments and demon possessions. There's no doubt he has that power. Now, in Greek culture, the the powerful healers were noted for all kinds of means and methods. And some have noted uh, out of historical accounts that these healers were noted for attempting cures by the application of various balms, some of which were rather unpleasant. An example of those from a second century inscription, so this would have been later than the time of Christ, but still close enough to maybe give us some idea. Uh, It actually ordered a three-day application of a balm made from the blood of a white rooster mixed with honey and eye salve for the recovery of sight. It does sound rather unpleasant. Somebody should have told them about essential oils. Might have made for better uh, opportunities, right? Well, the friends know that there's no concoction available to them that can actually do for this man what needs to be done. But they know that the hands of this healer have power in them. And so they're saying, would you please bless him? Lay your hands on him and bless him. Jesus is a powerful healer, but look at verse 33. He's a personal healer. And this is one of the things that marks him as as a genuine God-sent healer. He's not looking to make a show out of this. He actually pulls the man aside, takes him into a private setting, if you will, and then puts his fingers into his ears, and this is unusual to us, we don't fully understand this, but after spitting, apparently, on his own fingers, he touches the tongue of this man And it actually, again, think about what this man has experienced since this hearing loss, whether he was born with this condition or underwent some kind of... Disease or experience that, re- that that took away his ability to hear, and then over time he's losing the ability to speak clearly. think about what it must have meant to him that this healer takes him into a private setting, removes him from being in the public scene where he can experience that kind of ongoing frustration that he's known every day, and no doubt that kind of judgment and criticism from other people because remember he does live in a culture even though we're not in the heart of Jewish Israel. We're still close enough to it and a part of it where many people, like even Jesus' Jesus' own disciples in another situation, would say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be deaf? So there were a lot of people who would have assigned some kind of spiritual reason to his deafness, especially if he wasn't born that way. Well, he must have done something bad that God would afflict him with this. But Jesus takes him out of the crowd and then touches him. And no longer is this man thrust into the public eye in a way that he doesn't want to be conspicuous, but he is cared for. One author writes, physical contact is an expression of Jesus' compassion. Love seeks intimacy, and the touch of Jesus is a tangible prelude of the fellowship that believers experience with him through faith. I pause for a moment just to say, do you see Jesus as being so personal? Do you see him as being one who would gladly draw near to you, in your need, touch you as needed and necessary, expressing his genuine love and compassion, closing that distance that sometimes we feel exists between us? And if there's existence between you and Jesus this morning, it's not because he's indifferent to your need or reluctant to draw near or occupied with other things. It must be something on your side. Come to him. Even as Nick was exhorting us earlier, and we sang the beautiful lines of that old gospel hymn, speaking of what a fellowship and and what love divine we can experience as we lean on Jesus. Well, the story continues, doesn't it? And Jesus is not simply there to show a kind of compassion and and love to this man, but he is actually present to liberate the man, and he does it with his powerful word. Look at verse 34 with me. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And Mark uses a word that speaks of, uh, of a groan. It's a word translated in other places for prayer. And here is the the Lord of glory looking heavenward, reminding us again that He's come to do the will of the Father. In the same way that He broke the bread and began to share the fish, He he looked heavenward at that point. And so his, His prayers are ascending to His God and our God, to His Father and our Father. He sighs heavenward. And then after sighing, the text says that He speaks. And He speaks to the man and Mark quotes him directly. F. is an Aramaic term. That was the common language that Jesus spoke. But Mark, who's writing to a, prime, a predominantly Greek audience, translates it for us, and it's helpful even for us in English. It's a simple word, isn't it? A word of command, be opened. And as if... Anything else would happen. Look at verse 35. His ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. Again, Mark uses terminology to describe the opening of his ears. It's used of things that are closed like treasure boxes and doors. The point is he is able to hear where he once wasn't. It's a reminder to me of other passages in the New Testament that speak of God's spiritual work of opening hearts, of opening minds, of opening souls. This ought to to motivate and inspire and even shape our prayers for those who are dear to us, who we know are not where God wants them to be or we know are on that journey of spiritual understanding and they're not quite there yet. They can't grasp a certain thing or they're struggling to believe. Passages like Acts 14.27 that remind us that when Paul and Barnabas arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he, that is the God of heaven, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We sometimes think that, oh, Paul and Barnabas, I mean, they were spirit-filled, powerful preachers of the gospel, unusual people. They're in a different category than I am, and, and though I wish God would bless me in that way, I don't know that he ever would use me. Do you realize it's not that Paul and Barnabas were such extraordinary special men, it's that they served an extraordinary God who has the power to open entire cities and villages and communities and families and hearts that have long been closed and deaf to the gospel. Jesus speaks to his beloved apostle and disciple John, and in John's fifth book. You know, he's written five New Testament books. He wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote three letters that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to John and giving him a letter to share with one of the seven churches, and he says to this particular church, "'I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut.'" I simply bring these other references in at this point that you might know when the Lord of glory says to an eardrum or says to a heart or says to a community, be opened, it will be opened. I don't have that power. You don't have that power, but he does. The friends who brought this deaf man didn't have the power to unstop those ears, but the healer does. You and I bring the gospel to friends, to family, to loved ones. We don't have the power to open the hearts, but Jesus does, and he delights to do it. Be opened. And then look at the second result. His tongue was released. And again, Mark is using some very vivid and concrete language. One author even says it could be translated this way. The chain of his tongue was broken. That speech impediment that he's been dealing with, it's loosed. And he spoke plainly in a moment. No therapy, no relearning. Oh, that's how powerful and complete the healing of of Jesus is. Now the story continues, doesn't it? I'm going to come back to verse 36. That Jesus charges them to tell no one. But let, let's go to verse, or the end of that verse, and then into verse 37. The more Jesus charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and, the, and they were astonished beyond measure. Well, again, his healing power is widely proclaimed. And, and Mark says the crowd zealously proclaims this miracle. I mean, they're just shouting it loud. And they're just publishing this news abroad. And why wouldn't you? I mean, how, how could you keep this news to yourself? Zealously is a word that just says more abundantly, emphatically. I mean, it's just like, they, they were, the, the idea is that they're just saying it over and over. And they're spreading out and they're telling whoever they encounter. And then look at verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure. And again, we've encountered this term before, descriptions like this of the works of Jesus. Uh, to put it in, in more of our modern-day vernacular, it's just kind of like, man, they are blown away. Knocked out of their senses would also be one way you could, you could translate this. It's an astonished affirmation, because then they say, he's done all things well. And when they describe that work as well, there is a little echo, I believe, of what we Read all the way back in Genesis 1 in the creation account where after each day God sees what he has done and he says it was good. It was good. And at the climax, as recorded in Genesis 131, God himself assesses the six days of creations and behold, Moses writes, it was very good. Same kind of terminology there. Good, well, just depending on... On, on how we would write it or use it even in our language. Now, this is where I actually want to loop back around and try to answer the question, so why would Mark use some unusual terminology, and what is he pointing us toward? Because if there is an echo of Genesis 1, verse 31 here, here's Jesus entering the world that he once created. Right? Colossians, among other passages, tells us that he not only created all that is, uh, he upholds all things by his powerful word. So I'm struck by the fact that this is the creator who once upon a time created all that is, but something has changed it. What has changed it? Well, if you kept reading from Genesis 1 through chapter 2, you would come to chapter 3 and see that Adam and Eve commit treason against God and they sin grievously. And at that point, God pronounces a curse that includes pain in childbearing and pain in producing food to eat, sweat and sorrow, death and disease and decay enter the world. And that includes the loss of hearing and the ability to speak. Not every person has suffered that particular manifestation of sin. Not every person experiences the impact of of sin's curse in this particular way, but in the same conversation where God pronounces the curse, he promises that through the woman, a curse-reversing offspring will be born. Genesis 3.15, we sometimes call it the first gospel. There's the promise of hope. And all through the Old Testament, the revelation continues to build. It's not just the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and begin to reverse this curse that sin has brought upon us, but we begin to read that he will be a descendant of Abraham, specifically through Isaac, not Ishmael, specifically through Jacob, not Esau, specifically through Jacob's son Judah, not any of the other 11. We continue to read that he will be a prophet greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, a priest who will be greater than Melchizedek and greater than Aaron he'll be a greater king than David or Solomon and then we come to Isaiah's prophecy and Isaiah tells us perhaps more than any other single Old Testament prophet about this curse reverser He writes that Messiah will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Glory of the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. He will be a witness to the people and a leader and commander of the peoples. Isaiah calls Him the Great I Am, who is called, as Matt alluded to earlier, Emmanuel, God come to be with us. And when he comes, Isaiah says, he will establish a kingdom. And one of those descriptions is found in Isaiah 35. And listen to me as I read verses 5 and 6 and 10. Then the eyes, that is when this king arrives, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Are you hearing words in that passage that are, that are coming straight out of Mark's story at the end of chapter 7? Well, here is one of the really wonderful moments where you say, wow, I think Mark may have been doing something intentionally. That little word, that very unusual word for the speech impediment, if we could read the Greek copy of the Old Testament, guess where you'd find it? Isaiah 35. We can't be sure. We'll just have to ask Mark when we get to heaven. But if it's just an accident, it's one of those things where you're like, wow. And we know that the Bible didn't come to us by accident, right? Peter tells us that holy men of old spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit carried Mark's heart and mind back to Isaiah 35 as he wrote this story to say the things that were promised about Messiah, the great king, 700 years before this particular event. This is the start of their fulfillment. And Jesus looses this tongue because he is the great I am. He unstops this man's ears because he is the promised one. Now Isaiah speaks of something so much greater than one event with one man. He's talking about nations experience this experiencing this kind of liberation. That ought to give every one of us great hope. Great hope that the word that has started to be fulfilled will be completely fulfilled. There's no doubt that Mark has been telling this gospel account and recording it for us in a way that that we have to conclude this is our God Jesus is our only Savior. Jesus is the only King. Now go back to verse 36 with me. Because as great as this work is, does it not strike you as odd that Jesus would say, don't tell anyone? Well, his command reminds us that there's actually something greater that needs to be voiced abroad than physical healing. He said, what, what, what do you mean? I know it's not right in this text yet, but it, it's coming, we're setting some things up. I, I look at this and I say, humanly speaking, why wouldn't you want people to spread this news? And, and why would you even stop this man from saying, can I tell you what Jesus did for me? I would think you would want this man in the front office of, of your communication team or your PR group, right? I mean, you'd put him on billboards, and, and, I mean, you'd pay big money to bump him up to number one in the Google search, and, I mean, you'd, you'd want this guy out here, right? Everybody knows that the best marketing in the world is word of mouth from a satisfied customer. Do you remember back in Chapter 1 where Mark described... Jesus' powerful healing of the leper. Jesus had healed him, and then he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, Mark says, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And again, on one level, that's a great thing. I mean, who wouldn't want to find the healing of Jesus? And yet it actually hinders Jesus from doing the first priority, which is actually preaching the good news. And what is that message of good news? The good news is that this is the Savior who came to die for our sins. The really good news is not simply that you and I have hope of being healed of every weakness or infirmity one day, but that we could be delivered from our sins. One author writes, the command of silence is a reminder that knowledge of Jesus by his wonders alone is inadequate knowledge. Adequate knowledge of Jesus and hence proclamation about him must await the revelation of the ultimate mystery that can come only through his suffering and the cross. You see, Jesus' great priority is not simply the healing of bodily ailments and the relief of physical handicaps, but his great purpose and mission is to heal our hearts of sin that would destroy us forever, to cleanse our souls of real guilt that we incur as we offend the Most High God and as we break his commandments and and go our own way, as Paul describes in Romans. We're deaf in a way that can only be remedied by the blood sacrifice on the cross. We are mute in a way that can only be cured by His atonement. Our sin has stopped our ears and has tied our tongues so that we cannot know Him for who He really is and consequently we cannot proclaim or sing the praises of the cross the way we should. That's the priority message. And that would be why Jesus says, "Please don't tell anyone. He's on a mission. And the mission is the cross. I noticed that in the course of our singing um, this morning, we actually sang a couple of texts that, that are really old. Ferris Lord Jesus, I think that has a date of 1600s. Did you notice that, perchance, Nick? Not trying to put you on the spot. Anybody else see that? Um, And it's a wonderful thing that we can sing hymns that remind us we are are not the first generation to know these things. God has been revealing himself for thousands of years, and he's never left a generation without a witness. And our hymns are a reminder. People three, four, 500 years ago and way beyond who were singing as they experienced this spiritual hymn, Uh, healing. Some of our most beloved hymn writers uh, in the English language are the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. And you know, it's interesting to me that they actually attempted to do mission work before they were converted. They were very religiously inclined and actually graduated from Oxford University. This would have been the early 1700s. And after graduation, John and Charles decided to sail to America, which was the New World at that point. They wanted to minister to the rough colonists under General Oglethorpe in the colony of Georgia, and their desire was to evangelize the Indians. The Wesleys soon became disillusioned with the situation there, however, and after a short time, returned to England. And as they crossed the Atlantic, John and Charles were much impressed by a group of devout Moravians who seemed to have such spiritual depth and vitality, as well as genuine missionary zeal. After returning to London, the Wesleys met with a group of Moravians in the Aldersgate Hall. Here in May of 1738, both brothers had a spiritual, heartwarming experience as they described it. Realizing that even though they had been so zealous in religious activity, neither had ever personally known God's forgiveness or real joy. But from that time on, their ministry deplay- displayed a new dimension of spiritual power, and that because, that's because they were genuinely converted. The old hymn, O for a Thousand Tongues, was written by Charles in 1749 on the 11th anniversary of his conversion. It was inspired by a chance remark of an influential Moravian leader named Peter Bowler, who expressed his spiritual joy in this way. Oh, Brother Wesley, the Lord has done so much for my life. Had I a thousand tongues, I would praise Christ Jesus with every one of them. And these words of personal testimony by Charles Wesley have provided a moving vehicle of worship for God's people for now 270 years. We're going to sing these very short stanzas of this great hymn as a closing song of worship. And I, I also pray that you can sing it as a genuine testimony. But you know, if your soul is still bound up, And the tongue of your heart hasn't been loosed yet because you've experienced the cleansing that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, through knowing your sins are forgiven, that you've been brought into God's family, adopted, redeemed, justified, reconciled, so many other terms that we could pile onto this. Oh, would this be the day where you would just say, oh, Lord God, give me ears to hear you and loosen the tongue of my soul that I may praise you as you deserve that I may praise you as one who has been converted. Will you bow your heads with me, please, before we sing? I think it is admirable to say, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, but, you know, maybe you just say, Lord, just give me one tongue. Just one. Where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ today? Have you experienced the powerful deliverance from your sin? You say, I'm not sure. Call on him right now. Just admit, Lord God, I'm I'm sinful. I need your forgiveness. Asking you to remove the guilt of my sin. Give me a clean heart. Take away my spiritual deafness and give me a spiritual tongue. I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to praise you. God, here I am. Take me as I am. Maybe you say, "I, I know Jesus. I've just kind of wandered away. It's not like I've lost my spiritual hearing completely, but heart's a little hard. Soul's a little calloused over and There's not much praise coming out of me right now because I've been doing my own thing, living in sin, choosing my own way over God's. Oh, you know, he he stands before you today saying, come to me. Let's make this right. Will you do that? Father, each one of us has significant need for you at this moment. We're not here to compare our sins one to another. Whether small or great, sin quenches your spirit and it hinders our capacity to hear you and to respond in praise to you. Would you just wash us, cleanse us right now? Only the blood of Jesus has that power. So we're asking for that cleansing by faith. We've never actually seen him, his cross, the blood stains on that precious hill we call Calvary. But we believe that he shed his blood for sinners like us. We believe your promise that all who come will be received. You've never turned one away. So as we confess our sins, oh God, thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just do that. Do it right now. And as we experience that cleansing, our final prayer is that you would loosen the tongues of our souls to sing our great Redeemer's praise, to sing of the glories of our God and King, to sing of the triumphs, not of our works of righteousness, but the triumphs of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.